Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be, wherever you are, and when you are listening in to the inaugural podcast of Focus on Facts. I'm Eric Sussman, host of this new entrant into the podcast world, and I hope you will tune in each week as we try to make sense of the latest and greatest and perhaps not so great business and economic news the world of investing in real estate, and whatever the heck is moving markets and making headlines, or maybe just some interesting sidelines. From short squeezes in game stock shares and hedge fund blowups, to the best opportunities in investment real estate, to issues in affordable housing and what I call the three H's, the haves, the have-nots, and the homeless, to are we in a financial bubble when it comes to asset prices, either in real estate, stocks, or Tesla? Two issues in higher education. Will MBA programs like those offered by UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where I've had the pleasure of teaching for the last 26 years, be quite so popular in the coming years? By the way, to those of you who are UCLA Anderson alums and happen to be tuning in and who may have sat in on one or more of my classes, I would like to offer you a very special welcome and thanks for tuning in. The good news is that I won't be cold calling you here. Anyhow, we have plenty to talk about with respect to higher education. How about tax policy? That may not sound very enthralling, but if anyone out there really wants to deal with issues like wealth inequality, the erosion of the middle class, homelessness, or whatever social problem or problems that you care about, and I sure hope you care about many of them, well, Uncle Sam is coming and has to. So yeah, we need to talk about how we might need to change tax policy in a more optimal way, whether there is an R or a D occupying the White House and in control of Congress. And maybe, just maybe, we will even get to talk about some politics. Certainly public policy and regulations, inasmuch as those things have profound impact on markets, business, employment, and the economy generally. Anyhow, for those of you who don't know me, let me tell you a little bit about myself, other than I am 5'8", quite white, and quite privileged, and Jewish to boot. I had been teaching at UCLA Anderson since 1995, where I instruct MBA courses in accounting, financial reporting, finance valuation, and real estate. Because I am a non-research faculty, I don't have to publish a darn thing, thank goodness, although I do a lot of writing, and you can find some of my articles on any number of social media platforms. Meantime, I am also the managing partner of a real estate investment firm, Clear Capital, which on behalf of investors acquires apartment projects throughout the southwestern portion of the United States. I was born and raised here in Southern California, and in fact, other than two years I spent in Northern California for graduate school, I have lived in Los Angeles or surrounds my entire life. If you are so inclined, you can Google me to learn more. Uh, but I would just add, if you do that, for the record, I am not the Eric Sussman, who is the chief winemaker at Radio Couteau up in Sonoma, which I understand makes a terrific 90-point Pinot Noir. Uh, maybe one day they will agree to sponsor this podcast, Focus on Facts, which would be awesome and uh, very win-win, it seems to me. But anyways, my goals for this podcast are simple. First and foremost, I want to engage you to provide what I hope is a unique perspective on business finance, investment, and market news. Hopefully, I will educate some of us in the process, and hopefully you will educate me as well. 
I'd like to moderate thoughtful and perhaps at times controversial topics and discussions. There are so many important issues to discuss, and I really feel it's about time that I initiated some of these discussions, providing my perspective and voice. And those of you who know me out there, you certainly know that I have my opinions about things, but I love to engage in discussion transparently and deeply. It's why I became a teacher. Today, it's just yours truly, though I hope to have guests and interviewees in future podcasts and even to perhaps invite some of your participation in future episodes of Focus on Facts. Each week, I hope to start with a take from the top, a summary of the principal economic and business news from the week, and perhaps some general market and investment commentary. Little will be off limits, at least if I have my druthers. So with that, welcome to Focus on Facts. Without further ado, what do you think we ought to talk about today? Well, this week in markets, it was seemingly all about GameStop and short squeezes and how certain individual investors via Robinhood and Reddit and some related blog, Wall Street Bets, brought down a multi-billion dollar hedge fund or two. If we believe much of the media narrative, it was revenge of the individual investors on those nasty, greedy, and insert your favorite derogatory adjective here, institutional Wall Street hedge funds. Win one for the common retail investor waging battle against the investment titans. David defeats Goliath. Arya Stark kills the Night King. And the U.S. men's hockey team beats the Soviets in a stunning upset. Not so fast. That all may make a compelling narrative and perhaps capture a few eyeballs here and again, but it's really not accurate or it's certainly woefully incomplete. So let's talk GameStop. Let's talk about hedge funds and leverage short positions. Let's talk about gamma squeezes, which sounds like something improper that might occur to fraternity party, but really what the GameStop story is mostly about and something we will definitely have to describe and unpack. And sure, we will discuss the impact of social media and how folks posting stories on sites like Wall Street Bets can move markets. We will talk about what next do regulators need to do more to protect investors. More than anything, the GameStop story is a story that has been told and retold countless times in finance history. The dangers of leverage, a lack of or perhaps inconsistent regulatory oversight, and good old human nature. These can create a toxic brew, and history certainly provides plenty of examples to that. But there is something new to this story. How technology, social media, the tremendous rise in passive investment vehicles like index funds and exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, along with easy and widespread access to trading platforms and risky securities like stock options, provide the fuel for an even more volatile cocktail which can significantly disrupt individual stocks and perhaps entire markets. But before we get too far, let's focus on the facts. GameStop is a video game retailer, traditionally selling its wares via some 5,000 brick-and-mortar locations in 10 countries, and now increasingly via its website, GameStop.com. Not surprisingly, it's been a tough business in recent years. The company reported net losses in 2019 and every quarter of 2020 and declining revenues in every year since at least 2017. They had $500 million in negative free cash flows in 2019. That's for my 
accounting wonks out there, but they're literally bleeding half a billion dollars from what they do for a living. At least they did in 2019. And during the second week of January of this year, 2021, before all these recent fireworks, the company reported that sales had declined a little over 3% during the 2020 holiday season as opposed to last year. This is all from the company's publicly available filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Things have not been going so hot. At this point, let's get into a hot tub time machine and take a trip back all the way to the spring of 2020, (laughs) March and April, a time most of us now want to forget because of this thing called COVID, of course. At that time, GameStop was selling for less than $4 a share and had a market capitalization of less than $300 million. Because of the company's financial challenges, the risk of bankruptcy was not insignificant and the stock price reflected that risk. Short sellers, people betting against the company, were circling. Okay, let's stop for a moment and explain short selling, although I know many of you listening in are quite familiar with it. Others, perhaps not so much. Short sellers are really the opposite of those who are long or who own the stock. If you are long a stock and own it, you hope it goes up, of course, when you can sell it for hopefully a tidy profit. With a short sale, it is the opposite, where you sell a stock that you actually don't own, and not surprisingly, it has some very different mechanics. In a short sale, the short seller borrows the shares from someone who does own it. They pay them something for that right, just like we pay interest to banks who loan us money, and the short seller turns around and sells that share they borrowed, pocketing the proceeds. Of course, the short seller has to return the shares it borrowed and hopes to do so by buying back the stock at a lower price, returning it to the person or entity that lent it to them, pocketing the difference between the price at which they sold and the price they paid in order to cover their short and return it to the entity from whom they borrowed it. Sounds nifty. I know that many people dislike short sellers profoundly, claiming they are vultures or un-American because they are wishing for the demise of companies. But I am going to avoid that discussion for now, since it's really a topic for a separate day and maybe a future podcast. For what it's worth, I believe short sellers can and do play important roles in markets, ferreting out fraud or business models that are inherently broken. Yes, they can act inappropriately and distort valuations, but they certainly have no monopoly there. There are plenty of long shareholders who wear those same pants. Anyhow, back to our story. In the spring of 2020, when GameStop was selling at four-ish a share, having already fallen some 60% during the prior year. Shorts were piling on to the point at which GameStop was the single most shorted stock in the entire market, with nearly 99% of all of its 66 million of outstanding shares lent to short sellers, who had driven the stock down. One of those short sellers was a New York-based hedge fund, Melvin Capital, probably a name you hadn't heard before, or most of us haven't, which actually needed a bailout last week because of the GameStop squeeze. Now, one question you might ask at this point is, from whom did these short sellers, including Melvin Capital, borrow so many shares? 
The answer is really important and one that has not gotten much press in the reporting of this story. The answer is principally those passive index funds and exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, in which many of us have invested. I think all of my retirement savings are in passive index funds. Anyway, the biggest shareholders in GameStop at that time last year were trillion-dollar firms you may know, BlackRock, Fidelity, and Vanguard, along with other large institutions who specialize in passive investing, like Dimensional Fund Advisors, or DFA. But here's the key point. These are holders of GameStop shares and other stocks merely because they have to own them as part of their passive strategies. They are completely agnostic as to valuation, fundamentals, or whether GameStop's revenues are going up or down or they're open or shuttering brick-and-mortar locations. They simply own the stock because it's in the market, and they have to. And if the stock goes up relative to the index, guess what? They have to buy more shares of that stock. So remember when I mentioned that some 99% of GameStop's outstanding shares were sold short? Well, if you take into account that these funds are not sellers, the passive index funds and ETFs I mentioned, the real short interest compared to what's actually floating out there and available for sale is actually much higher, perhaps substantially so. And that too becomes an important part of this story. Anyhow, GameStop stock didn't do too much until the fall of last year when suddenly things started to change and get interesting. I'd like to introduce you to Ryan Cohen, another name you probably don't know, but who is central to the GameStop story. Ryan Cohen is the single largest shareholder in GameStop, at least to my knowledge, and he reportedly owns some 9 million shares that he bought last year at an average price of less than $8.50 a share. Those shares then would have cost him something like $80 million, and at Friday's closing price, they are now worth billions. So who the heck is Ryan Cohen? Well, Mr. Cohen is the co-founder and former CEO of Chewy, the online e-tailer of pet products, which was sold to PetSmart in 2017 for a cool $3 billion. He is all of 35 or 36 years of age and obviously very well-heeled. Pig ears and rawhide bones are quite clearly a decent business, at least in the right hands. Anyhow, Mr. Cohen believed GameStop could transition to be more like Chewy, selling its video games online, transitioning from the traditional brick-and-mortar business. And he laid out his investment thesis on Wall Street Bets, a subreddit blog. This was in the fall of last year, and sure enough, the stock began to rise ending the year at about $20 per share. Not a bad trade for Mr. Cohen, more than doubling his money, and certainly for anyone who bought the stock in the summer of last year, maybe quintupled their money. Definitely not chicken feed, to put it in chewy terms. Anyhow, let's continue the story. The stock, as I said, ended 2020 at about $20 a share, and 2021 started pretty quietly. The stock continued to trade in that range, roughly, and then on January 11, the company made its most recent and last formal communication about financial results about those 2020 holiday sales that they were down 3.1%. 
that wasn't much of a story as I understand it. However, on that same day, the company announced that Mr. Cohen and a couple other former Chewy executives were joining the GameStop board of directors. That was seen as very bullish news, and the shares doubled overnight to about $36 or so. About a week later, on January 19th, Andrew left, another name and protagonist in this story, who is the owner of a well-known short-selling entity, Citron Research, tweeted that he thought GameStop was overvalued, that Longs, like Mr. Cohen, had it wrong, and he laid out his thinking, just as one would expect in a reasonable financial dialogue and discussion about stocks. Well, as is often the case in this Twitter world, Mr. Left's post was seen as a declaration of war on on, on, a, on the company, at least to some. And then, boom, the stock started surging, becoming the most heavily traded stock in terms of market value last week, trading more than Apple. The stock hit a high of $483 on Thursday, giving the company a market cap of over $33 billion. Remember, remember that the stock price was like $4 and the company had a market cap of less than $300 million less than a year ago. Melvin Capital, that hedge fund I mentioned earlier that supposedly was short millions of shares, was forced to cover and had some big trouble with liquidity. Two other hedge funds, Citadel and Point72, came to the rescue, the White Knights, and infused something like $3 billion into Melvin Capital to shore up the fund. Obviously, all this activity got everyone watching. The Securities and Exchange Commission, Janet Yellen, our new Fed chair, and yeah, your Uber driver, your barista, and perhaps three or four of your family members who probably have no business paying attention to this stuff, but in any event, many of them have made some serious paper profits trading, or maybe I should say gambling, on GameStop shares. The media definitely took hold of that part of the story. Meantime, Robinhood and Interactive Brokers, two of the platforms through which much of the GameStop trading took place, halted trading, supposedly to protect retail investors. But the fact is that Robinhood, at least, needed a liquidity infusion, had its own financial issues, and was injected with like a billion dollars of capital for collateral so that it would be able to clear and finalize these investor trades. Okay, so what exactly caused this huge price spike from $20 a share at the end of 2020 to over $480 on Thursday. Was it really about David slaying Goliath, the individual retail investor taking down a hedge fund titan, Arya Stark taking down the Night King? No. Certainly news about Ryan Cohn and his publishing a very bullish case for GameStop last fall generated a lot of interest and did cause the stock to rise. But remember, it went from four to 20. But from 20 to 400, That is something quite different. So what caused this massive, nearly unprecedented short squeeze? This was not a squeeze principally orchestrated by individual retail investors, though they certainly played a role. 
there is simply no way that retail investors could generate the kind of sales volume in GameStop shares that we witnessed. This was a special get-together where other hedge funds and institutional investors, along with the likes of very wealthy individuals like Ryan Cohen, along with an army of retail investors on Robinhood, all went to the GameStop prom together and created a gamma short squeeze. Oh boy, that sounds complicated. I'm now throwing in some Greek to what's already a complicated concept, which makes it sound like I'm reading some advanced finance textbook. Let's chat because this is important if we're really going to understand what we witnessed last week. Here's how it works. One, you have a lot of shares shorted in a company. In the GameStop situation, over 100% of the float, many shorted by hedge funds using leverage to support their positions. Again, remember, they had borrowed so many shares that needed to be bought back, but so many holders of the stock, those passive index funds and ETFs, are not sellers. The stock price begins to rise, and those passive funds and ETFs actually have to buy more of GameStop stock because they sort of have to, again, as their prices relative to the index becomes greater. At this point... Some short sellers probably cover buying back shares to close out their positions, taking losses in the process. And again, this does drive up the stock price to some degree. But here's where things take a far more complex turn and we really have this squeeze, this gamma short squeeze. Certain institutional investors, namely other hedge funds, see this short squeeze evolving and they want in on the action. They know that the Melvins of the world are short huge numbers of shares. They know the float isn't all that great. They see the fuel for the fire in the background, and they think, again, they want to get it on this action. So what they do is where things get a little interesting. They begin to buy in huge numbers out-of-the-money call options. Let's talk briefly about call options. Call options, like all financial options, are derivative financial instruments. And a call option specifically gives its owner the right, but not the obligation, to buy shares of a company at a specified price during a specified period of time. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say GameStop again is at $20 at the end of 2020, which it pretty much was. And let's say you wanted to speculate gamble or even because you had good reason to think the stock was going to go to 50 between January 1st and June. You could go out and buy one call option, which controls 100 shares of stock. Each call option controls 100 shares of stock at a $50 strike price that expires in June. Now, what happens? If the stock price doesn't get to $50, I'm sorry, whatever it costs you in premium to buy that option, you'll lose it. The option expires worthless. But let's say the stock goes to 60 or 70 or 80 or whatever. You have now taken a small investment because this call option was much cheaper than buying the stock, 
because again, it was so out of the money and magnified that return significantly. All right, because again, remember each call option represents 100 shares. So these institutions can take very magnified, very focused, and yes, very volatile and risky positions in GameStop stock, which is exactly what they did. They clearly anticipated or thought that in this kind of short squeeze, GameStop stock might go a lot higher. Meanwhile, the entity or dealer that sold those large options to these institutional hedge funds needs to hedge themselves to protect themselves. Because think about it, they sold these call options to these institutional hedge funds. What does happen if the stock goes to 60, 70, 80? Holy smoke, we have to deliver these shares at 50, right? That's strike price, and we could take a bath. So they want to start hedging their positions, and they therefore start buying large numbers of GameStop shares. Well, what happens? You're probably getting the picture. GameStop stock rises sharply, causing, again, all these things to sort of happen in a feedback loop. The passive funds have to buy more. The short sellers are losing more and more money and covering, causing the stock price to go up, yada, 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 to quote George Costanza, right? This positive feedback loop, and the, really the impact of the call options is the gamma squeeze. Gamma, which literally is Greek, uh, is a, a term used in option trading and option valuation. It relates to the time left for an option before it expires. Not that that matters, but that's why we call this a gamma squeeze because the impact of those call options, which again has gotten virtually no coverage in the press. Obviously, it's a hard thing to explain and you got to kind of feel for journalists who don't really write about short squeezes very often having to figure all of this out in very short order, real time. So the GameStop situation was really a squeeze from many sides, a multi-dimensional squeeze, and many played a role. The option dealers, those passive funds, the likes of Ryan Cohen, and sure, plenty of baristas, Uber drivers, and your family members, all right? Meantime, the thin float in the stock because the institutional passive holders of the stock aren't selling. They helped launch GameStop stock into the stratosphere. So in this process, some hedge funds and wealthy individuals like Ryan Cohen made a boatload, literally billions at least on paper. And yes, some individual retail investors made some serious profits, at least for now. But what happens from here? First and foremost, fundamentals will ultimately rule the day, at least in the long run. While the machinations in GameStop shares are historic, remarkable, and compelling, whether GameStop has a viable business model remains to be seen. Can they make the transition to online e-tailing, or will they end up being the next blockbuster, or something in between? Time will tell, and the jury is still out. But one thing is clear. GameStop is not worth $23 billion, which is what its value is as of the close on Friday. And its stock price will ultimately decline as all the shorts cover and the stock begins once again to trade on fundamentals. I, look, I don't know what GameStop 
stock is worth. $3, $5, $50, or whatever. What I do know, and I don't think it's all that controversial, is it's worth a lot less than where it's trading as of the end of the close of the markets on a Friday. And who is likely to take these losses as the music stops and there are not enough chairs for everyone and that stock begins to trade again on fundamentals? That's right. The Uber driver, the barista, and your family members, and maybe a couple of you, that really jumped on the GameStop bandwagon just because, because, I don't know, they missed out on the rise of Bitcoin or whatever. Will some hedge funds, t- uh, hedge funds take some losses too? Absolutely, and that's already happened. But the brunt of the losses looking forward are likely to be borne by retail investors. So what are the lessons, takeaways from what happened in the GameStop saga and perhaps topics for future podcasts? Well, here goes. One is the dangers of leverage, of margin, buying stocks with other people's money, trading in options or other derivatives. These are inherently risky things to do, and yet history demonstrates it, and nevertheless, people engage in the behavior over and over again. Human nature, and again, the availability of cheap and ready debt. Two, the power of social media and information dissemination. That is definitely something we all know and recognize has changed substantially in recent years, and provides some changes to financial markets potentially. As much as it democratizes information and access to markets, it also can be dangerous. In addition, the news isn't always complete. I don't believe in this whole concept of fake news, although some of it might be. It may just not be complete, and I think much of the reporting surrounding GameStop has not been complete. Not necessarily untruthful, just not complete. Technology. The ability to trade millions and millions of dollars in stock or other securities in milliseconds from your smartphone is probably not a good thing. I remember the 1987 stock market crash, October was a 22nd, if memory serves. Anyhow, with the S&P 500 fell 22% in a single day. A huge crash. Imagine if investors could have traded even more stock that day in milliseconds. It might have been worse. In those days, you had to pick up a landline and press some buttons or probably even use a rotary phone and dial and have to talk someone in person if you wanted to place trades. Well, of course you couldn't. There was no way of getting through and and it was a good thing. Individual investors couldn't sell on that day and panic like many might have. Today, People I read are taking their 401k uh, savings or their pension fund savings and trading this way instantaneously. And that just seems like an oxymoron to me. You shouldn't do that. That just seems very dangerous if, you know, if not reckless. Lax or inconsistent securities laws. As I mentioned earlier, and as many of you know, I'm the managing partner of a real estate company and we use investor capital to acquire apartment buildings in the southwestern United States. Well, under securities laws, if one of you want to invest in one of our offerings, and this is not an offer or solicitation to sell, I'm just using it for educational or illustrative purposes, but if you wanted to invest in one of our projects, you would 
generally speaking, have to have a net worth of at least a million dollars exclusive of your home. All right, to invest in an apartment building, which you can see, touch, feel, and due diligence on. However, you want to invest in GameStop stock, you send money to a broker like Robinhood, sign a few forms, basically, and you're off to the races. You want to trade options? You sign another form, basically where you kind of represent you know what you're doing. There are really very lax securities laws. Now, I know some of you on the right are like, look, Eric, you know, I don't like regulations. I believe in free markets and we're already too heavily regulated. And I know there are those on the left who are like, are you kidding me? We need more regulation. And I believe in a lot of what Elizabeth Warren has been promulgating and proselytizing for the last bunch of years. Look, the truth is, from my perspective, somewhere in the middle. I do believe we need regulations to protect investors and many people from themselves. And I would also argue that some of the securities laws that impact my other business are over the top and anachronistic. We shall see. Ridiculous liquidity. There is a tremendous amount of money sitting in the, on the sidelines right now, adding fuel to these fires. There's something like $16 billion sitting in bank accounts in the United States, which are, is earning negative real returns, returns less than inflation. As we know, the interest rate on our savings is somewhere between jack and squat. The Federal Reserve has been actively adding liquidity to markets, uh, post-COVID and certainly post even the financial crisis uh, in the Great Recession. But that's created some fuel to these sort of GameStop bond fires. And last but not least, I think COVID-19 is also partly to blame. People are home. People aren't working. There are a lot of young people out of work. And they're sitting in front of their computers reading Wall Street Bets blogs and trading stocks. And that can run the gamut from being really educational, again, to really dangerous and reckless. Anyhow, that is pretty much what I want to talk about with respect to the GameStop stock and short squeeze saga. And I really want to thank you for tuning into the inaugural Focus on Facts podcast. And I hope you'll tune in next time when I hope we have something just as compelling and interesting to talk about. And I'm sure that we will. Until then... I'm Eric Sussman, and I wish you all a very pleasant morning, afternoon, or evening. Thanks again for tuning in.